Good evening. This is the Beyond Zero Emissions show. Monday, 5pm, you're on 3CR. That was Marissa and Peter just now uh, doing the Doing Time show. And uh, you can listen to 3CR on 8.55am, streaming or through podcast. And Vivian, we've got a, a good show lined up tonight. I know. I hope people like it because um, the Paris Climate Conference has been in everyone's mind, but there's been so much information that I just thought I'd like to give a few little bits of it um, in summary and then uh, introduce the show. Absolutely. Far uh-huh. away. Well, the Paris uh, Conference, as we speak tonight, is putting out texts now. They're starting to put out draft texts and one of the ones that I'm hopeful about was that they want to hold the temperature increase to 1.5 degrees centigrade, which is what a lot of our Pacific um, guests have spoken about. Uh, the president of Tuvalu, I think, last week spoke about that. 1.5 is the absolute maximum. Mm-hmm. It'll be very hard to achieve. And they, to get there, they want decarbonisation as soon as possible, which is like not on the never-never, but really quickly. And to get that, uh, we'll have to leave a lot of the coal, oil and gas in the ground. But meanwhile, inside the conference, you know, these are the draft sort of resolutions starting to come out, but inside the conference I was dismayed to hear that corporations like NG and Air France and Renault and Nissan have been major sponsors of the conference and um, Naomi Klein had an article today saying this is a result of austerity but this gives a megaphone to them. You know, they've got stalls inside the conference Mm. and offering their clean solutions which will possibly be or probably definitely won't be sufficient solutions in order to preserve their business model. And um, Naomi Klein says has given a megaphone to the corporations and taken a megaphone from the civil society groups because outside the conference, there are um, you know some French climate activists have been put under house arrest. There's also been news of protesters being arrested. And uh, despite that, I was glad to see Australian activists like Deborah Hart, who mm-hmm. we interviewed earlier in the year in the Melbourne Climate Act. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw a little YouTube. I've been getting all these YouTubes and articles and so on, but the YouTube of these climate angels, you know, just toning it all down, standing in front of the Eiffel Tower, doing these little um, beautiful acts with music inside shows around that, you know, have sort of braved the men with machine guns and the kind of rather frightening atmosphere of a city mm. still under a state of emergency. So mm. I was really pleased to see them. Well, I think I saw something, a tweet or something from Deborah Hart saying that it would be very hard to be arrested uh, by the police, uh, to, for, for the police to arrest women wearing angel <laughs> costumes. I know, and, they, and it just, it's disarming. And mm. a lot of people said, oh, you know, I'm, I'm huffing and hiring about that. But I think they are right. You know, some of the artistic things are disarming, the business as usual kind of mm. angry energy that often develops around that. And it's very frightening in the city where they've had so many killings. And they've braved that and I think added something to it. And meanwhile, back in Australia, as we reported last week, um, 150,000 people stood up to be counted in people's marches and I think most of those people would know full well that won't be the last march and that won't be the last time they're being called on to swell mm. their numbers and take action. That's right. Well, at the Melbourne one, which we went to, Vivian, they certainly mm. uh, uh, mentioned that, that this is the beginning of the action rather than some sort of end point. But um, yes. as you say, it is somewhat gratifying to hear anyone talking about a 1.5 degree 
target rather than this rather arbitrary two degree <clears throat> budget which we've um, spoken you've spoken about with guests on the show throughout well, the course that, of the year it is and I was, I, sometimes people don't even like to think of being activists but I think 2016 is going to be a time when all people of goodwill and you know uh, well informed people will have to take action whichever way they can from the very most local one protecting their forest or taking these sort of public actions and I thought well what's really important is that we have the freedom to do that we do at the moment have that Mm. freedom but it could be rapidly eroded and so tonight's show is about lawfare which will be debated something in a bill that's going to be debated in the Senate where Senator Brandis said that climate activists and this is a quote he said they are determined to wipe out the coal industry End of quote. And he doesn't want city activists like us lending a hand, for example, to people at Malls Creek or Galilee Basin, where those huge coal exporters stand to make billions. Mm. But um, I think he doesn't want city people protesting about coal seam gas drilling either near the aquifers and farmland. And we've reported on that all through this year. And um, Bolga versus Rio Tinto, that we'd remember that Aboriginal man, um, Adrian Burragubba from. That's right. Wanga and Jangalinga mm. people they're taking on these mono, you know, mega companies, Adani and the Liverpool pharmacy and Shenhua. So mm. I've got um, two speakers who are very well versed both in the law and in civil rights and in how you go about things. Um, Professor Clive Hamilton, who wrote that book, Requiem for a Species, but he's not giving up at all. He's arguing about why we must not curtail people's rights to take these projects to the court. And then I interviewed Senator Larissa Waters um, from the Greens. Uh, she was uh, launching the Repower Australia um, new you know, policy um, when I was last in Melbourne, and she's just given me a short interview on law, the lawfare and why we... You know, people who are becoming active need to be able to use the courts as part yeah. of our democracy. Because, you know, what's at stake if the mines go ahead, the exported emissions, the way I look at it, is that that's just going to make a mockery of all the renewable energy targets and emissions cuts that our government is signing up to at Paris. That's nothing compared to what we're exporting. Yeah, I think, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, George Brandis is actually correct. We uh, do want the end of the the, uh, fossil fuel industry, at least over some some period of time. That's the inevitable outcome of having to move to a, a zero-carbon economy. Yeah, well, we want a government that will listen to the people and, you know, the populations both in the local areas and the people who have the bigger interest at heart, like the Barrier Reef or the Great Artesian Bank, people who are well-informed. Um, the government is, is not there to serve the companies. They're there to serve the majority of the people. It's not a government for the minority. Mm. It's a government, you know, for all of us. And, and after we've heard about that, you know, the lawfare, I've... Got an interview here with um, a, a completely different tone. This is a, a person who went up to Malls Creek after all the battle was all over. His name is Jeff Maddox, and he went on a retreat up there, and he, he gives a, a very good account of it, not, the graphic that advertises our program, which people can look at on Beyond Zero uh, Emissions website. This It's a stamp which was made by David Watson, the artist we've talked to, to here. Um, it shows a person in something called the echidna. It's a woman lying down with both arms in great big gallon drums of concrete with sticks coming out, and they call it the echidna, but that was to stop those big earth movers moving in to dig up for Whitehaven coal. Mm. And um, Jeff Maddox went there to this place where such a huge battle and so many brave people have been. 
and he just talks about it and it's now apparently a place where people go to gain strength for the next battle. You know, they're not taking it as a defeat. It's just the staging post in mm. this thing that we have to go on with and after that we hear from a young Aboriginal boy called Jared Talbot and I rather like what he said. He's just sort of just innocent, young, like I think he's about 14. He says what the land means to his people and there's a lovely song which was attached to that interview called Shine a Light. So I think, you know, protest it's arming ourselves to you know take this seriously and and gird our loins because it's going to be uh, quite a uh, a struggle ahead yes that's right that's right yes so um i was thinking take this, heart you know take that's heart, right yes there's all these good people before us and there's some um, very good reasons as the aboriginal boy said it's so mm. precious and you can't just make a black void whole void out of it that's right. It is the only earth we have and the earth we live on. So, <laughs> so it is a great lineup uh, tonight, Viv. Shall I launch okay. into it with? Um, I think so. What's Sen- the first one? Sen- um, Senator Larissa Waters. Okay, and then Clive Hamilton. That's See you it. later, Jay. Okay, bye. Bye bye. I have uh, Senator Waters with me, and I'd like her to talk. Well, she's a lawyer, and she's spoken to us often on legal matters about this new attack on citizen action, really. Um, the federal government is set to crack down on environmental law force, which is their phrase, uh, restricting green groups from having le- legal standing to challenge mining, approval and other big developments. Now, Larissa, this has played out for me very personally. I've stood in the street with the people from uh, Bolga who are fighting off Rio Tinto. The Supreme Court said, yes, the mine could not go ahead and then they got approval. It's also up your way in Queensland with the um, Adani mine getting a court, a stay, and then being approved. So can you tell us the importance of this in the Senate and uh, how it's going and how is it? Li- how likely is it to pass through? Look, it's been a real shock to see any government propose limiting people's rights to see the law upheld, and particularly our environmental laws, which are clearly there to protect the public interest in a clean environment and clean air, clean water, and the wonderful natural assets that we're also proud of as Australians. And so for the reaction by the then Abbott and the now Turnbull government to silence people when the government makes a mistake and gets its own law wrong is just unfathomable. And we had hoped that when the Senate inquiry report into the government's bill to take people's rights away was delayed, there was some cause for hope that um, then new Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull was going to ditch these silly and undemocratic attacks on the Australian community who love nature and want it protected. But sadly, um, they then brought that report date forward yet again. And we just saw last week that the report suggesting that the laws be passed was tabled. And we'll have a chance to speak to that report in the coming week in the Senate. So we still don't know whether the government is intending to push this bill to a vote or not, because they do know that they don't have the numbers to pass this awful legislation unless something's changed and they've given some additional sweeteners to the crossbench at last reckoning there wasn't support for this plan to stop people enforcing environmental laws when the government's gotten it wrong or when big mining companies have tried to ride roughshod over our laws and so it's a bit of a wait and see as to whether we'll even um, have this bill on for a vote but it's a huge attack on people's rights to say we love the reef we don't need to live next door to it to care about its future 
we shouldn't just limit um, the right of people to protect these natural assets to people who live next door to them and might be financially impacted. It's not about financial impact. It's about our love for these icons. And all Australians are proud of our reefs, our forests. We don't need to live next door to them to care about them. Well, I think um, it gives a terrible message to the public too because the public are coming out in numbers in New South Wales for the Liverpool farmers, you know, to protect the Liverpool plains from mining and various other huge, um, the Great Forest National Park in Victoria against logging. There's lots of citizens, a big ripple effect that we need. But um, George Brandes called this vigilante litigation, which someone from the EEO says is a, a huge oxymoron because here we are taking the court route, which is legal. It's not vigilanteism at all, taking the court route. And I think that there's a, a lot of disappointment in the public that, that this could, could happen. And I'm waiting for the big court case that is about climate change because it's not just about the reef, it's not just about the forest, it's about the bigger global environment. I would like to take action on the Typhoon Haiyan. I went to a vigil, Typhoon Haiyan. There are groups who want to support them because our coal is fueling their typhoon. So can you talk a bit more about that, about the court case that you would like to see which has climate change at the centre? Well, look, our climate needs so much better protection from all aspects, including from our laws. Our environmental laws at the moment are very poorly drafted and they were written before climate change was really in the mainstream. And so there's some um, wonderful uh, community groups who are using the fantastic environmental defenders' offices to try to use our laws to um, protect the climate. But it's not written in there in black and white. And really what we need in terms of climate litigation is for there to be a clear climate trigger in our environmental laws that says once and for all you shouldn't be building something that's going to emit you know over a certain amount of emissions or um, you must refuse new coal mines we need our laws strengthened and from there we would then I hope have communities ensure that those laws were upheld in the courts but we're so far away from that at the moment we've got inadequate environmental laws that are poorly enforced that are often um, incorrectly interpreted by the minister himself he's forgotten twice now to take into account conservation advices, a crucial piece of scientific information about the conservation of species. And so the community um, had rightly said to the courts, look, the minister made a huge error. This decision can't stand. And the court said yes, and the minister even agreed. Yeah, whoops, I made a big mistake. This, this decision's invalid. And then for the likes of George Brandis to have the audacity to try and make out that these were vigilantes, mm-hmm. when in fact it was the minister's own mistake, mm-hmm. is just a new level of hubris that that we hadn't seen until then. Uh, What I'm worried about is that you would now see more arguments in court about who's got the right to protect the environment because we've got some great clear rules in our laws at the moment that say if you've been around for a couple of years and you've been active in the area and you're an Australian citizen or you're an Australian NGO, then you can enforce our laws and you can hold the minister to account if he or she makes an error. What I'm concerned about is if we lose that good, clear specificity, which is what the government want to do, they want to take out that whole section, Mm. you're then back to the bad old days of you don't know who has the right to enforce laws and who doesn't. And you use what's called the common law, whereby you have to argue that somehow your private interests are affected or you've got some kind of special interest above the rest of the community. Maybe it's financial, maybe it's property-based. But it takes you back to A, uncertainty, and B, it just 
completely ignores the public interest in the environment and that for most Australians it's not about um, just caring about something because you know it makes us money or, or we live next door it's actually about knowing that these wild places and these beautiful species exist and we want them protected and we want the laws that are meant to protect them not only enforced but actually strengthened. So we're far away from that from a climate trigger? Look there's not a lot of talk um, about a climate trigger and I mean we Greens are speaking about it we've long advocated for that particularly now that we've lost the price on carbon that we Greens fought so hard to bring into the parliament and that was working so well until Mr Abbott tore it down particularly without those laws we desperately need a climate trigger that says that the environmental impacts of climate change are real and need to be addressed and that we should not be approving new coal mines or new unconventional gas fracking or you know new coal-fired power stations big sources of carbon pollution our environmental laws should should have something to say about that and currently they don't specifically so we need reform desperately whether there's an appetite for it we'll see at the moment Mr uh, Turnbull has simply kept all of Tony Abbott's climate policies and we desperately need him to, to make a break but he's got his own party to contend with in that regard mm. okay thank you very much that was Senator Larissa Waters in Melbourne thank you so I'd like to introduce our first speaker, which is Clive Hamilton, who many of you will know. He's a professor of public ethics at the Charles Sturt University and one of the country's most prominent public intellectuals. He's the founder and former executive director of the progressive think tank, the Australia Institute. He's published extensively on the issues of political economy, ethics and climate. And Professor Hamilton is also a member of the Climate Change Authority, which has played a really important role over the last few years in um, pushing forward climate change policy. Please welcome Clive to the stage. Thanks very much, uh, Amanda, for that uh, lovely welcome, and to Chris and Daniel for the invitation, and uh, congratulations for this uh, fabulous book that uh, we're here to launch um, tonight, so it's a great pleasure to, to be here to play a part in uh, launching, Sydney launch at least, of this uh, very important new book. And um, as uh, you probably already know, it's a book about what global corporations do uh, to keep the wheels of the system turning in the face of uh, dire warnings uh, on the part of the climate scientists, uh, including every science academy in the world, uh, warnings that things must change. And the book focuses on how the uh, dominant global culture persuades those who are angry about the lack of urgency in action on climate change to express their anger in more system-compatible ways, ways uh, that allow the system and the problems it causes to carry on pretty much as business as usual. So this, so this book shows us, I think, for the first time in a, in a persuasive and systematic way, how, as the, uh, as the book itself says, quote, corporations are shaping humanity's response to the climate crisis. And as I uh, write in the preface, the authors uh, show in fascinating detail that it's not that the executives who run these corporations are evil, um, they simply function in the way that the system dictates. And if they don't like it, they just have to leave and they'll get in more compliant uh, executives to, um, to carry on with the charade. But, of course, the way governments uh, function is at the centre of the problem too because only governments can compel corporations to act in ways 
that don't uh, cause the climate to be uh, disrupted. And so this evening I want to uh, deviate a bit from the uh, theme of the book to comment not on how our governments are allowing corporations to carry on with minimal change, but how the government, our federal government in Australia, is suppressing environmental groups, the very people who want to take the scientists' warnings seriously. Now, political scientist Mark Hudson has recently drawn our attention to the escalating rhetoric uh, from industry and the radical right. Rhetoric uh, that is, uh, attempts to paint environmental activists as terrorists. And so, a little over a year ago, the uh, Coalition MP George Christensen said that North Queensland would, quote, no longer bow down to eco-terrorists and would uh, call out these gutless green germs for the terrorists they are. Right-wing commentator Judith Sloan also referred to environmental activists as eco-terrorists. The coal industry often warns about, quote, environmental extremists, uh, with Australian Coal Association Chief Nicky Williams ramping it up by describing anti-coal activists as, quote, sociopaths and terrorists. Um, Our uh, recently departed uh, Prime Minister's Chief Business Advisor, Maurice Newman, uh, often claimed, and still does, that climate catastrophists uh, want to, quote, end democracy and establish global communist rule. (laughs) Now, it's natural to laugh at this uh, foolishness, But the truth is that the federal government is getting very serious about suppression of of environmental activism. When the uh, Mackay uh, Conservation Group recently won a legal battle to enforce the provisions of the Environmental um, uh, Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act uh, in its insistence that the approvals process for the Adani mine should actually adhere to the provisions of the Act, When they succeeded in that that court case, the government in Canberra went into rhetorical overdrive. Uh, Then Prime Minister uh, Tony Abbott described as legal sabotage. Treasurer Joe Hockey attacked the, quote, bullies in the Green movement. And describing the legal action as vigilante litigation, Attorney General George Brandis, he's still around, uh, moved immediately to change the environmental protection laws to prevent this kind of legal challenge ever happening again. The government also branded the court case extreme green lawfare. Now, lawfare is a word that was previously absent from the Australian political lexicon, and it refers to the use of law as a weapon of war, an offensive action against an enemy without force of arms, but deploying domestic and international law. And the use of this term is very revealing. The Conservatives who use it believe they are at war with environmentalists. The extraordinarily intemperate outbursts from the former Prime Minister down, terrorists, sociopaths, saboteurs, bullies, vigilantes, have been so uh, over the top that they reveal, I think, a deep fear and loathing uh, by Conservatives for environmentalism. But it's not just rhetoric. In recent years, they've put their threats into action. So we've seen uh, the raising to draconian levels uh, penalties for protesting at coal-fired power plants. 
the government has sent counter-terrorist operatives from ASIO and the Australian Federal Police to spy on and infiltrate protests and protest groups. Actually, that was begun uh, by Martin Ferguson, the former Labor minister. And uh, this government has moved to strip environmental groups of their charitable status. I mean, the truth is, for most environmental groups uh, and other groups, their, their charitable status is their most valuable asset. And to take it away from them would, um, uh, uh, for many of them, uh, destroy them pretty much overnight. Of course, uh, taking the charitable status away from environmental groups has been um, a, a crucial goal for the Institute of Public Affairs for many years. One of the most insidious developments of recent times has been the use of the very serious threat of violent terrorism to vilify environmental activists by lumping them together into the same basket. And I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago in the notorious case of Karen, the eco-terrorist. As you know, Australia does have a very worrying problem of radicalised Islamists committing or planning to commit violent acts, including bombings, stabbings and, as we now know, regrettably, very regrettably, murder. Responding to the radicalisation process, the federal government has developed its Living Safe Together campaign, which includes a booklet, um, and the booklet focuses on uh, the processes uh, by which young people might be turned from uh, being ordinary uh, law-abiding members of society into violent fanatics. And those being radicalised, the booklet tells us, typically uh, go through a process which involves cutting themselves off from society, begin to use hate rhetoric, blame an enemy for uh, the world's ills, dehumanise opposition groups, become increasingly suspicious of everyone other than those in their uh, clique, and collect and share violent material from the internet. And what is disturbing... Fair enough. uh, But what is disturbing about... um, Uh, all of this, is that among the kinds of violent extremists the pamphlet identifies as threatening, quote, Australia's core values and principles, are those motivated by environmental causes. And the document illustrates the problem with a number of case studies allegedly drawn from real life. And among them is uh, the case study, now probably true to say the infamous case study of Karen, an environmental activist who appears, there are another three case studies that the booklet identifies, and those other three are Kazal, the would-be Al-Qaeda assassin, uh, Eren, the Muslim-bashing neo-Nazi, and Jay, the paramilitary jihadi. And what happened to Karen, a kind of summary of of this uh, story here, is that she's a fun-loving university student, she's probably going to Sydney University, and uh, she attends an environmental protest protest and gets mixed up with a radical green group. She becomes increasingly absorbed in this extremist faction and drops out of university to devote herself uh, to uh, radical action, in particular forest protests. And so she cuts off links with her loving family. Uh, She drifts away from her friends. Uh, She becomes completely absorbed in this radical faction. She begins to see herself as, quote, a soldier for the environment. And she goes out spiking trees, sabotaging machinery and getting into punch-ups with police and loggers, ending up in jail. 
By squeezing Karen into the radicalisation template, which the booklet sets out, uh, this um, document presents a ludicrous tabloid version of the making of a dangerous greenie. For anyone who knows anything about green activist groups and those who join them, the story is risible. So who is Karen? Well, she seems to be a figment of the lurid imagination of Attorney General George Brandis, <laughs> who wants to change the laws to nobble, quote, radical green activists so they can't, quote, sabotage development. But the truth is that there is no violent environmental extremism in Australia. None. And there's no threat of it, certainly not against persons. There has, of course, been a surge in civil disobedience, most recently organised by Lock the Gate and bringing together farmers and environmentalists to, to attempt to obstruct mining activities. But there's nothing in common be between these non-violent acts of civil disobedience and those of the Muslim youth who murdered a police employee in Parramatta a week or so ago. There's nothing in common with these activists uh, and man Haran Monis who gunned down innocent uh, citizens at the Link Cafe. To put them in the same category is obscene. More than that, it's sinister and extremely dangerous to our democracy. Now, the Attorney General's Department says it prepared uh, this booklet um, based on the expertise provided by Monash University's Global Terrorism Research Centre. Well, if the centre has such a woefully inaccurate understanding of environmental activism, one has to ask whether all of the advice uh, it gives to the government is based on tabloid headlines and right-wing paranoia. In addition to the, its booklet, um, the which incidentally the booklet is due to be distributed to school children throughout Australia. Uh, the government is also uh, distributing around the country, in movie cinemas for example, uh, this postcard, which is urging, urging citizens to be on the lookout for radicalisation to violence. A reader of a uh, column of mine sent this to me. He picked it up in a cinema. And uh, the postcard was created, instead of those who might be interested, uh, and, and is distributed by the Sydney company Avant Card. Avant Card. Now, what is striking, as you'll see, about the image chosen for this postcard um, is that none of the signs and symbols on it point to Al-Qaeda or ISIS or, or terrorist groups. Instead, the symbols are those of the urban peace and environmental activists. We see the familiar anti-war symbol, the dove of peace, the triangle used by the Greens and lock the gate. And the person there is an inner-city graffiti artist in a hoodie, which reminds us not of an ISIS killer, but perhaps a Banksy, um, with a touch of René Magritte. But the caption on the back of the card, um, which is headed Radical Change, reads, using fear, terror or violence or supporting its use for ideological, political or social change is illegal. This is violent extremism. So what's the purpose of inventing the threat of violent environmental extremism? Well, the answer is that some conservatives regard non-violent civil disobedience as morally equivalent to violent extremism. 
and which therefore demands a matching response. When this kind of anti-green fanaticism is officially endorsed and actively promoted by the Commonwealth, the paranoia of a right-wing fringe is validated. Apart from anything else, the diversion of attention and resources from the genuine threat of extremist violence to the invented threat of environmental activism means that fewer resources are devoted to protecting the community from the real dangers of extremist violence. Well, to finish, I've deviated, of course, from the topic of the book we're launching today, but this topic is something that's animating me in particular at the moment. Um, But beneath um, uh, my commentary here and the book's argument lies one common theme, of course, and that is the unwillingness of our government to take the warnings of the climate scientists sufficiently serious means that their priorities are profoundly wrong. Extremist violence is a serious problem in Australia, but it doesn't threaten our way of life. Climate change does. And it's the corporations that are stopping action who represent a profound danger to all that we love. So this book by Christopher Wright and Daniel Nyberg goes inside their world and shows us just how they're doing it. And so I commend this book wholeheartedly and wish it well. I'm Helen Razor, but that's deeply irrelevant. What is relevant is that you're listening to 3CR on, what's that frequency again, dear? 855, I told you, Helen. 855. And what is relevant is that you're not listening to that other crap. So well done. Well done indeed. You're listening to 3CR, as Helen Razor just said, and it's the Beyond Zero community show. That last speaker we had was Clive Hamilton, Professor of Public Ethics at Charles Sturt University. And coming up, as Vivian introduced at the top of the show, is Jeff Maddox visiting the Black Hole at Moores Creek. This is the Beyond Zero Emission Show, and tonight we're talking about the Laird State Forest and the Moores Creek Mine. We had several talks before with uh, Jonathan Moylan and uh, activists who locked themselves onto the trees there. There has been a huge protest about this forest, uh, which we've been, people have been trying to preserve because the coal mine, Whitehaven Coal, would have a huge impact on, on climate if the coal is exported, and it's having a massive local impact. The last time we spoke about it, it was still a possibility that the mine would be stopped, but since then the mine has gone ahead and a lot of the forest has been bulldozed. And I've got someone here called uh, Jeff who went there to visit that area after the mine has now started and he went on something quite interesting, which was a retreat with interested people. So I'm just going to ask him to describe his trip there and his growing awareness of what has happened at that place. Well, I uh, went to uh, Malls Creek at the beginning of September with a group of about a dozen people from Sydney, uh, mostly uh, Uniting Church members, but some other Christians and uh, people of no faith, on a uh, an event that was billed as a spiritual retreat and awareness awareness raiser, organised by uh, Uniting Earth Web, uh, the uh, Uh, an agency of the New South Wales Synod of the Uniting Church. And so uh, about 10 of us, I think, travelled by train from Sydney 
through the Hunter Valley to uh, get to Malls Creek. And this was an eye-opener in itself because uh, beyond Newcastle, I hadn't travelled in that railway line which runs through the heart of the Hunter Valley uh, and in parts passes places that you don't see from the road. So I think we, uh, we went very close to about a dozen um, uh, coal mine pits and I was certainly aware of coal mining. I've seen plenty of uh, photos of open cut mines but uh, the reality of being close to them is uh, really something else because they're up to 300 metres deep and up to several kilometres long. Uh, and uh, the, uh, uh, the giant uh, mountains of overburden which have been created are right next to the tracks in some cases. The, the pits are right next to the tracks so that uh, there are not only these huge holes but mountains that weren't there before of all the, uh, the soil that uh, lay over the coal which has been piled up to get at the coal. And uh, yes, I urge everyone to just open up uh, Google Maps, uh, turn on the uh, satellite imagery uh, and just have a look at the Upper Hunter Valley from, uh, from Maitland in a, a northwest direction up towards Murrundi, which is at the far end of the, the upper end of the Hunter Valley. There are just this series of huge grey scars on the landscape. And, of course, we also passed uh, coal trains um, uh, passing us, heading for Newcastle and waiting in sidings, about 50 cars long, carrying thousands of tonnes of coal each. And uh, I remember passing them and trying to uh, do sums in my head about uh, how many of these trains must be travelling to... uh, transport the uh, the staggering amounts of coal that are coming out of that area. But at any rate, we, uh, beyond Murrurundi, we passed over the range and into uh, a different valley, a different uh, river catchment where I had never been before, and that's the Liverpool Plains, which is the, um, the valley of the Namoy River, which flows northwest uh, through Moree and Walgut, I think, and, and ends up as part of the uh, Murray-Darling river system. And the Liverpool Plains are, uh, are quite a, a wonderful place, and it was a whole new landscape to me. Um, very flat, very green, apart from um, uh, a few uh, uh, mountains that rise up out of it, which are still covered with... Uh, with native forest, but all the flat land, uh, the forest is gone and uh, uh, it's covered with um, agricultural crops, mostly uh, irrigated. Mm. So, Jeff, you cross this land, it's almost as if you were on an adventure going through country New South Wales, which for our listeners will be new too, because they won't, many of them won't have travelled across that land. What did you know already bef- about the Moores Creek um, occupation, really, and the huge campaign behind that? You, you know, I, I'm sure you would have gone there having heard a lot about it. Uh, yes, but I must admit I hadn't followed it closely over the last few years, and quite a bit of what I knew I only had read about uh, not long before I went on the retreat. Mm. Uh, so I was um, 
I was aware of the blockade. I was aware of uh, the company that had developed the mine and its connection with Nathan Tinkler. Uh, I didn't know that the Malls Creek mine is now uh, owned by Whitehaven Coal. I didn't know that there were two other coal mines very close to there, so that uh, the Laird State Forest, which is a relatively small state forest, uh, some thousands of hectares, has has now been about 50% destroyed by uh, uh, these three uh, huge open pits, and particularly the, the Malls Creek mine, the newest one, which has uh, destroyed an area of forest equivalent to thousands of football fields uh, just in the last 12 months or so. So this is a defeat in anyone's language, I suppose, but did you meet some of the activists? Are they defeated? Uh, No, they're certainly not defeated, and yes, I met quite a number of them. Uh, There are, I don't know how many people, a significant number of people who have... Uh, just walked away from professional careers, from mainstream uh, life and mortgages and and all of that because they have realised what a critical point we're now at and that environmental activism is the most important way to spend their time. And I didn't previously know any people who had taken that path but a number of the people who went on the retreat had actually been at the Malls Creek blockade in the past at least four people there who had been arrested during the protests and got large fines in uh, in a number of cases though some of those were uh, uh, were reduced or or changed on appeal so these were people who had taken time out from uh, mainstream life to uh, really put themselves on the line and and end up with criminal records because of how important they uh, they believed this was a lot of these people would be local uh, concerned about the local effects i've met a lot of people in these various struggles concerned about the effect on the great artesian basin on the water on the local animals those uh, and, and uh, tree species in the, in that forest but there's also climate activists who worry about this coal once it's exported there's a huge climate impact for that much coal going down on those trains to newcastle and um i want to know now that the coal is being produced i think you said something about it's actually kind of pyrrhic victory for the Whitehaven people because they won't make any money out of it. Well, tell us, tell the listeners about that. Well, I did try to do a little bit of my own research on this, but uh, I'm certainly not authoritative on this one. Whitehaven Coal doesn't disclose what the sale price is of coals from, coal from particular mines. So I don't think we're able to get at the uh, the prices they're getting from the Malls Creek mine, uh, they claim it's an above market price, which it would need to be because their um, their mining cost that's disclosed in their annual report is actually higher than the spot price of thermal coal is now. Mm. So unless they've got a very sweet deal, then they're losing money on every ton of coal coming out of Malls Creek. But it could very well be that uh, 
this the massive destruction uh, for this mine will all be for naught because the company won't even make any money. However, something I've I've really come to realise in this process is that. Uh, the people who run the coal mining companies are true believers. <laughs> they do this because they believe that there's still a market for coal, that prices will rise, and then in the long run they will make money. And in a sense they have to believe this because this is all they know. They are career coal miners, mm. the, the people who manage these companies. So for them to decide there's no longer a dollar in this or that it's unethical and we simply shouldn't do it is a uh, a very big paradigm shift and it certainly hasn't happened yet for a lot of them so they are going ahead with faith that they will end up making a dollar and these mines will be successful but to me that's not at all clear okay well the last question is about sort of faith and ethics i mean you were there with people who were having a retreat in this to me now blighted landscape so what did what came out of it for you well all kinds of things came out of it and to um it's uh, so many that it's hard to get a grip on them one is the the hope and the commitment of the uh, the activists I met, and the uh, they personally and the organisations they belong to are now moving on from Malls Creek to um, uh, put their efforts into opposing the Shenhua coal mine, which is also in the Liverpool Plains, south of Malls Creek, at a place called Breezer. Big efforts going into that, uh, but. There are a number of people who were very involved with the Malls Creek protest who are saying, well, uh, we want this uh, this protest camp to live on and become a, a cultural and environmental centre that can be ongoing in this area. And there are actually moves with a group of dedicated people to create a permanent camp at uh, Wando, Cliff Wallace's farm, which was the the final home of the protest camp after it was moved off to different sites on public land and that's where um, that's where we were staying and that's the site where hopefully there will be a uh, a cultural and environmental centre in future so that the uh, the wisdom and the experience from uh, from these protests won't be lost could I just ask you one last thing about that? We've had the Pope coming out now with a very strong statement about climate change and the sorts of uh, things that you're saying is keep the fossil fuels in the ground and with just climate in mind that people should see this as a moral problem. It's a moral thing to do. And you said that the companies need to find that immorality in their business, maybe. I don't know, you didn't say that exactly, but what do you think that people who have done a retreat like this or people who have come from a faith tradition really have to offer giving more momentum to this thing that has to be a global people's movement to stop just the source of fuel that we're using, it's just the fossil fuel is one aspect of climate change. What, what sort of extra dimension do you think people like that can give? What we can give is that we come from a starting point of uh, loving all the people of the world and while there certainly is a tradition in, in Christianity coming from the Old Testament which says that the role of humans is to fill the earth and subdue it and control it and, and exploit it and make a living from it uh, we also have this tradition that says 
every person is precious and we have now come to uh, a point in human history where everything has changed where uh, we're, we're living in this new era the Anthropocene where um, where human impact on the world has overtaken all other impacts geological and and so on uh, and so that changes everything because our love and our commitment to the people of the world means we have to look after the world in a way so that it won't destroy us so that uh, hundreds of millions won't be swept away in floods in Bangladesh for example due to uh, uh, changing weather patterns and sea level rise. Thank you very much. So that was a person I met, Jeff, who went to Laird State Forest on a retreat to find out what was going on. Thank you, Jeff. Jared, I understand that you've spent a bit of time out on country with with a lot of the elders here from the Gomorrah community. What sorts of things were you doing? Uh, just uh, ceremonies and going out country and having a look at the things before they mines go and blow it up. No. What did you see? Uh, just a lot of the stuff that our ancestors used to do, like grinding grooves and the artefacts that they used to use to skin their roos and all that. And It was amazing. But then all the other elders said. Been, haven't been out there in a few years, but then they went out, and, that, and it was just amazing to see them go out, like go out back in country, and the ceremonies were amazing, and it was all good. But now it's just gone. It, it was basically gone in the blink of an eye, and after all those millions of years of the mother nature making it, and that it's all gone now in 20 or so seconds, it blew up. Now, you're a young fellow, you're only 13, and I can see it's, it's been very emotional for you. Is it, um, I mean, how, how has it impacted you, do you think? Oh, it's, well, it impacted me a fair bit. I, I've been out there with it, like, I've been on the journey the whole time, well, basically the whole time. I've gone out to these after ceremonies with the elders, and they're all, like, they're disrespectful out there, they've got no respect to it whatsoever. It's got a big impact, because it's like, our sisters, like you go to say someone like if their family died, it's like, do you want me to go dig up your family? And they say no. Like, and that's what it's like to us. Out there. It's like they go to dig, did they digging up our family? You know, like, and blowing them up, well, not even digging them up, they just blowing them up. And that's what it, that's what hurts us the most. And they just clear it on the trees and and blow everything to pieces. <laughs> Just describe to me before, on the sites that you went before, when you got to go out. Like, what's it like? Is it's beautiful. It's and it, and it's all all about to go. It was basically the bush. It's we all walk through there and we found artifacts, scar trees, you name it. There was everything. It it, it was basically like a town, and the way that they live. And the way we live today, it's totally different. It's amazing, it? like how how the world's changed and the landscape out there is just it's trees everywhere. It's just the bush. It's basically if anyone went out there, they'd just go, "Oh, you heard it's bush." Wow, but to us, it's it's more than that. It's it's we're a part of the, like part of that land and that, and it's yeah, it's amazing. And was there an emotional attachment as well? It's one thing to see these things yeah. and identify and say it's like a town. But was there an emotional response as well? Oh, my life, there was. If you can't feel it, you, well, you might as well say, you just might as well go. It, but it 
there is them that you can feel them. You, know, you can feel the spirits, you can feel all the stuff like that, and it's amazing. And that. What have you learned from this whole experience? Oh, I've learnt. I've learnt heaps. I've found artefacts up near my house. I've found identified scar trees. I've helped find borer grounds. I've helped with a lot of the stuff and that. And it, I, like, you, you can't learn as much. Like you can learn stuff from museum, but you can't learn as much in the museum as you can out in the out in the open. There's out in land on country. There's more that you can learn than what in like in the in a room. If you can't feel your culture, well. I don't know. I don't like. I, can, I don't know what you can do if you can't feel the culture. But if you can't feel it, well, that's it. You might as well not worry about it. But it is to me. There's a bit. I got. I'm attached to it emotionally and a lot. Before the whole white saving thing sort of started, did you know as much about your culture? Or it's been a learning experience. No, I never. You never really knew about it. Like I was, didn't really care like much. But now that I've had the chance to go out and. With the elders and actually do the stuff, I, I'm with it now. I, I like, I actually like it, and I love it. It's, I love how we used to live, like ancestors used to live, live in that. So for you now that you've, you know, I suppose you're re-energized and you're really sort of getting into your culture. How are you going to sort of continue that as you you grow up? You're still a young young fellow. Oh, we'll, oh, we'll continue with that. There's no doubt about that. Then I'll do all I can to actually try and, like, to save the sites out there, and that's basically it. I, I'll try and do everything I can to save, like, save the sites and that. And have you got friends your age too that are sort of getting into this as well? No, not really. I'm really the only one, but like they they go on and everything, and talk about the madam blowing them up and that, and they don't really care. And I just say to them, look. They're blowing up our family. I said, do you say your mother and father passed away? I said, we, we went and dug them up. What would you do? And they said, they'd go as kids. And I said, well, that's right. I said, well, why do you think we're going, going on about them? And I said, we ain't, they ain't digging us up. They're just blowing us up. I said, but there's nothing even left there. I said, and then you've got half the other community that's going out and um, signing off and all the stuff and that and making the mines destroy them where they should be, in fact, stopping them. You got a message for Whitehaven? He's gonna go down. That's all I can say. You're gonna go down hard. Thank you. 
South Wales, North West Australia It's time to rejoice Shine a light or lose your voice Core of my heart My country Like drums in my heart And I'm This is the Beyond Zero community show wrapping up for another week. That was uh, the song Shine a Light, played just after, uh, can I say, a young Indigenous man called Jarrett Talbot talking quite passionately about land and culture there in the Nexus. Prior to Jared, we had Jeff Maddox, who did a trek out to the Black Hole at Malls Creek, and prior to him, Clive Hamilton, Professor of Public Ethics at the Charles Sturt University. And of course, if you were with us approximately an hour ago, you would have heard Senator Larissa Waters talking to Viv. So that is the show for tonight. Um, We're now entering the holiday season, which for Beyond Zero means that we're going to play the best of 2015 or the summer highlights. It won't be just repeats. Next week, for example, we will be bringing you an extended talk with uh, talk by Naomi Klein. So all your favourites from the year plus more starting next week. Stay tuned for Save Albert Park. And may I just say I need to thank the team as well, which is Teddy, Miwa, uh, Roger, Jody, and, of course, our intrepid Vivian. See you next week.